when you're talented, it, it's more of a, of a curse than a blessing. Because if you don't learn the skill set, if you don't develop the characteristics of somebody that isn't talented, eventually your talent is going to wane and other people are going to catch up to you. And if you've been relying on talent and not work ethic and not character and not skill, then um, you're going to actually be way behind down the road more of when it actually matters. This is From Paint to Purpose, a podcast by FCP Services, where we believe people drive growth, exploring topics related to company culture, leadership, and construction industry insights. Now your host, John Barsness. All right, why don't we get started? Um, and, uh, and why don't you give our audience a uh, 10,000 foot view of who you are, how you got into this area of being an author and a speaker and, and a coach and all these things that you are involved with. Yeah, so my name is Joshua Medcalf. I grew up playing sports, loved sports, grew up in the Midwest. My dad was a doctor who um, grew up in a trailer park, had to duct tape his trailer together, had to fight his way back across the railroad tracks every day to get home. Um, so it was pretty crazy that he was able to become a doctor. Um, but in that period of time when he was in residency and things like that, whenever I was young, um, I, we were so poor, I can vividly remember dreaming about Happy Meals when we lived in uh, Troy, Michigan. And so, um, you know, my mom actually is the one who taught me how to play sports. And then when I was 17, um, I had an offer to go play soccer at Vanderbilt, which was a huge deal to my dad, you know, growing up where he did. And, you know, it was a dream school. Uh, I didn't even really know much about it. Uh, but it was really the only school that offered me a scholarship. I got a 10% scholarship to play there. And it was right about the time where my dad had just started making a good enough amount of money where he, he felt comfortable. Okay, we can afford to, you know, put you through there. And so uh, I go to Vanderbilt on a soccer scholarship. Uh, I get kicked off the team uh, five times in two and a half years. Um, I was an absolute head case. And then they end up cutting our program after my junior year. So at Christmas of our junior year, we came back and found out that our program was no longer there. So they still don't have a soccer program for the men. Uh, I didn't have very many offers. I had some small offers, but uh, I just felt really bad. You know, my parents had sacrificed a lot for me to go to Vanderbilt and I didn't want to transfer to, you know, a small school and kind of throw away all the money they'd spent on two and a half years of me being at Vanderbilt. So I hung up my cleats. I uh, thought I was done with soccer. Fast forward nine months, I go off for the club soccer team. Uh, they end up cutting me. And so I'm like, okay, I thought I was one of the better players on the varsity team, but I can't make the club team. Then three months after that, it's my birthday. I'm talking to Joe Germanese, who'd been on our team at Vanderbilt. He had transferred to Duke when our program got cut. He's like, hey, dude, are you interested in coming to play soccer at Duke? And I'm like, uh, I think a better question is, is the number one team in the country interested in a guy who got kicked off the team five times in two and a half years, who had mediocre statistics, and who just got cut from a club soccer team? And he was like, yeah. He's like, dude, I, I vouched for you. And uh, we've got some scholarship money available. And so by the grace of God, I ended up getting a full ride scholarship to play on the number one team in the country. But then when I got there, that's when things were really tough. I'm now playing with and against some of the best players in the country. 
And at that time, I found myself the last pick on the team when we would play pickup games. And I was taking this sports psychology class with this guy by the name of Greg Dale. And Greg Dale one day asked a question. He said, how much of sports do you guys think are mental? People are going around the class and it's 90% athletes uh, in the room. And people are like, you know, 70, 80. You know, one girl was like, I think that sports are 100% mental, Greg. And I was like, if sports are over 70% mental, which is what Greg said he thought they were, I'm like, why has nobody taught me how to train mentally? Spent my entire life playing sports and nobody's ever talked about this. So if this is true, then there's a lot of people that failed me miserably. And then on top of that, I was looking at Greg Dale and I love him to death as a human, but I was like, I don't think that you played sports at a high level. And, um, but I was the last pick on the team. Didn't have anywhere to go, but up from there. So I said, whatever, I'm going to attempt to do what he's talking about. It also helped that he'd worked with people like Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and Ichiro and banking leaders would fly around uh, from all over the world and to meet with him. And so I was like, whatever, I'm going to try this out. Very quickly, I went from being the last pick on the team to being the ACC player of the week, to being the Duke student athlete of the week, and to finishing second in points on that team at Duke to the very best player in the country, Mike Grella. And so I had this transformational experience when I was exposed to this very basic elements of sports psychology. And then I got really, really mad. And I was like, why did I have to get to Duke to learn this? And so uh, up until that point, my plan had been to go to law school. I had scholarships already lined up. I did pretty well academically for the first time in my life, uh, working on my master's there. And, um, and I skipped scholarships to law school. I moved across the country into a homeless shelter downtown uh, Los Angeles in Echo Park. And I lived and served there for about seven months. Then I moved into the closet of a gym uh, down in Whittier, was a sports director for a local church. And, uh, and for three years, I was going into the housing projects in Watts and South Central and training the athletes down there. So um, that's how things started was just my mission was get sports psychology to the masses. What do I wish that I would have known? What tools do I wish I would have had? And so throughout that journey, I ended up creating the first mental training apps in the world for basketball, soccer, and golf. Uh, I've now published nine books for seven years. I was the director of mental training for UCLA women's basketball. And, um, at one point IMG Academy approached me six years ago, asked me to head up mental conditioning and leadership. I ended up telling them no, but that was what kind of spawned chop wood, carry water. Cause I was really nervous. If I was an employee of theirs, they would own my work product. I knew I was one of the go-to guys for sports psychology in the world of sports in this country, but I, uh, I hadn't really written that book yet. And so I didn't really leave bed for almost two months. And I just wrote, I write almost all my books on my phone. Let me rephrase that, write all of my books on my phone. I just, uh, I edit them on a computer. Sometimes, sometimes I still edit them on a, on a phone. I don't like computers for uh, creative work. And so that's where that came out of. A year after that had come out, it was pretty obvious that it was going to go viral and that it was going to be one of the go-to books in sports psychology. Today, I think it's seven years old and it's still one of the best-selling books in the world. It's self-published, never spent a dollar on marketing. Um, it's just one of those books that when people read it, 
they uh, immediately feel the need to share it with other people. And um, it's strange to uh, have written a book that people actually read. It's even more strange to have written a book that people read and feel this guttural instinct and need to share with others. I think that's the 10,000 foot view. Well, it, it is it is a fascinating story, but I think the the piece that that struck me the most was this was your own experience, but also what that meant for you that you've given to the world. Mm -hmm. Right. It wasn't something you just did for yourself, but you recognized that there was an anger that came from this that was why can't I do this uh, and bring this to the, 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 as you said, the masses? So one of the things that I, I read in Chop Wood, Carry Water the first time I read it, which was probably five years ago now, um, and that stuck with me was this only thing that is truly significant about today or any other day you write is who you become in the process. As somebody who's grown up playing athletics, I was a, I was an athlete in college as well, but also in the business world, uh, I have started three companies, sold uh, all three of them, and uh, am, am helping business leaders lead. One of the things that always is that buzzword, if you will, even in, in business, and I would argue in sports, is goals or outcomes, right? And yet what you talk about is enjoy and embrace the process. So why is embracing the process so much more valuable to people than goals or outcomes are, whether it's personal or professional or anything in between? Well, I have a very interesting relationships with goals and, and goal setting. It's never made sense in my mind. The first book that I wrote is titled Burn Your Goals. Uh, my dear friend, John Gordon, somewhat begged me not to title it that. Uh, he wasn't the only person that told me that that was, you know, book writing, book publishing, suicide. But it just never made sense to me, man. I, you know, John Wooden said, I've never met somebody that's described for me what you can do that's better than your best. And honestly, I think that goals allow people to shirk, shirk responsibility. They, they, they put the responsibility in somebody else's hands. They instead of you know focusing on outcomes that we can't control why don't you just commit to you know whatever it is that you need to do every single day and doing that thing every single day what if you commit to sacrificing whatever you know that you need to sacrifice um, and that if we if we do those things then the results which were are outside of our control are going to be probably pretty close to what they should be but whenever we especially in sports, it's a, it's a tiny bit different in business because in business, it's not a zero-sum game most of the time. Whereas in sports, it's a zero-sum game. And there's some games where you can tie, but for the most part, you win or you lose. And, you know, you take, uh, let's say, college basketball. There's, you know, there's 250 or so teams that all have the same goal of being a national champion. That's silly. What happens then when you lose your first five games? What happens? What happens when you get knocked out of the tournament? What you're like? What if only one team can can achieve that? And so, 
the issue is that if we focus on those as well, then oftentimes, I think uh, maybe I had written, that was an early edition of that quote, but I think that the full quote is that the only thing that's truly significant about today is the impact we have on others and who we become in the process. And the issue when you're so focused on a certain outcome is that oftentimes you will sacrifice stuff that truly matters on your deathbed like the relationships around you in the pursuit of some thing like winning. That's like this intangible thing that's never going to do for you what you think that it is. The funny thing is I won our club championship this year, uh, technically 2021. And, um, you know, the next tournament's coming up in 2022. And so many people have talked to me about like, well, you have to play in the club championship again. And I'm like, why, what is it going to do? It didn't change anything this year. I didn't get treated better because of it. I didn't get more respect because of it. I didn't, I, I don't have to fall and maybe I'll play, maybe I won't, but like, I'm not going to fall for this illusion the same way that coaches are like, I've got to win that first national championship. And then as soon as they do, it's like, well, now I got to win, win another one to prove that the first one wasn't a fluke. And it's like, guys, we're like these crazy, you know, dehydrated people that are chugging salt water, thinking that somehow achievement and more success is going to fill this you know, need that we have. It doesn't do it. It can't do it. It's not designed for it. I'm all about you know, us working incredibly hard and in and, and personal greatness and, and tapping into our potential. But like, that's not about these outcomes. That's about who we become in the process. And if you become the type of person that you know, exhibits the certain characteristics of the people that win, then you're going to give yourself the best chance of winning. Um, But why would you tie everything up in something that is outside of your control? And, but then a lot of times I, I honestly think that we're, we like to be able to say, well, the refs, well, my teachers, well, my coaches, well, my boss, well, yeah, well, I don't care about them. What did you do and what did you not do? And if you just do those things, and that's what chop wood, carry water really embodies is what is what is your chop wood, carry water? What are you supposed to do every single day without excuses that is going to help you become and develop more of the skills and characteristics of the type of person that you want to become? Yeah, I think what made it so meaningful to me from a business perspective is often we, especially in leadership and leadership development, I I have coached a, a number of CEOs who they chase something. And, and whether it's those aspiring leaders who are like, hey, if I just get to this title or I get to this role in the organization and sit on this hierarchy – then I'm going to arrive. And I, and, you know, one of my, my favorites, uh, and I, and I worked with and, and, uh, him on, on multiple projects is, uh, is John Maxwell. And he always reminds people that, uh, you know, if you think that you are arriving as a leader, you haven't arrived anywhere, right? It's that, it's that idea that if you think that that's what you're striving for, you're going to be sorely mistaken because somebody's going to be better than you. Somebody's going to be smarter than you. And that isn't a, it, it just is. There is always going to be somebody who's going to have something that maybe you don't have. That doesn't mean that you are not successful. It doesn't mean that you can't meet your personal best. And so as I've coached leaders, I have been on the periphery of this, unfortunately, Let's stop talking about what role you want. Let's in, let's improve the skills you want because once you do that, 
the opportunities will present themselves. Well, and also, what does success mean? I, yeah. I've seen a lot of people that you know chase things that they consider success, but then on their deathbed, it, they realize, oh, um, I, I lost all the stuff that actually matters. That, and so that's why one of the first exercises I do in any keynote or working with you know an, an individual, uh, I want you to write out your obituary. Because I think that our deathbed and living life through a death lens actually magnifies what's really important in life. And acting like we are going to live forever and acting like that, you know, these um, successes and material success or business success are going to matter at the end of our life. That's not really the way that it works. And that doesn't mean I tell people, hey, you shouldn't, you know, want to be successful in these areas. But, you know, I I do believe, like C.S. Lewis said, that we should put first things first. And if we put first things first and secondary things aren't suppressed, they increase. But we live in a society that's obsessed with secondary things and putting secondary things first. And then the first things oftentimes end up suffering. That's why Mark Rick, the former uh, head coach from Georgia, would say, you know, anytime be careful of the trail of tears. And I'm paraphrasing, but that trail of tears that follows these coaches is usually their wife and kids. And that's pretty sad. Yeah, it is. And it's also very relevant in the business world. You know, that's, uh, you know, how many broken homes and broken families have we seen because uh, people didn't leave the office uh, at a reasonable time or spend actual vacation time with their family. Uh, They were too worried about making sure they were on every call that needed to be there and all those things. So interestingly, one of the things I thought was, uh, has has been that theme around what you've written around is this idea that you, as you refer to it, the scorecard of society and what they get so wrong uh, and is so flawed in many ways. So what does that look like when you're talking about how do you how do you help them help people see that the things that society says are so important are really those things that are not as important, especially when that's all that they hear. You talk about athletes and growing up and what do we hear over and over again with athletes, right? It's, well, if you just do this, you're going to have an opportunity for uh, a scholarship. And if you don't get this scholarship, you weren't successful. Or to your example earlier, well, yeah, everybody shoots out there uh, out of the gate saying we're going to be national champions, but there's really only four teams probably every year that legitimately have the talent to be able to do that. And yet, does that mean everybody else, even those other four teams, by the way, does that mean that the rest of your, your season was a waste yeah. because you didn't win it, right? So how does, how does society sort of warp this into our, our psyche that then takes to, to us to be retrained into the things that are most important, especially around the pursuit of whatever success needs to look like in our world to, to say that we have... Been, met our personal best, whatever that personal best is. Well, first of all, I, I don't try and convince people of things. You know, I, I write books in a way that, um, you know, that's that's a you know, people when they read those, you know, maybe that's uh, that comes across there. But when I work with individuals, I I ask them, what does a truly successful life life look like to you? What's going to really matter on your deathbed? Who are the people that you look up to, and what characteristics do they embody? What what who are the three people that you admire the most and what characteristics 
do they have that you admire? It's not good to put people on pedestals. People are fallible. People are going to fail us. That's a, that's a guarantee. And, but it, we can look at the characteristics that they have and we can be really intentional about creating a new scorecard where we focus on those things. So I don't tell my clients, you know, this is what should be on your scorecard. I, I ask them what they think um, is most important for living a truly successful life. I had a client that uh, ran a $100 million business and he actually said that the most beneficial thing that I gave him was this new scorecard that he kept in his wallet. And it had you know four things on it that every single day he was looking at and knowing that that was his scorecard for the day. And around lunchtime, he was gonna grade himself on how he did. And in the evening, he was gonna grade himself once again. And in between, he was trying to be really intentional in every single meeting, uh, every call, interaction with somebody that he had, especially the big ones, what characteristic can I be really intentional to focus on inside of this situation that I have coming up today? And so um, I don't know why or how it happens. Like I have some pretty good guesses of, you know, why our society, you know, kind of burns those things into our uh, belief system. But to me, that's not the important part. The important part is what can you do to combat it? And again, get to the point where on your deathbed, you can have peace. I don't try and tell people what's right or wrong. Um, I try and deal way more in, is this the most beneficial thing for your life? And what do you want your life to look like? Um, you know, and I might ask questions, but I gave up a long time ago of trying to tell people what to think and what to believe. Um, I, I just think it's a not really worthwhile cause. Well, absolutely. I, I would I would say that that I would agree with that. I probably phrased it wrong in in my questioning of it, but. So one of the things I think that you 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 write and, and speak of, and I've heard you say this a couple of different times in different speeches that I've I've heard you uh, um, give, is everyone wants to be great until it comes time to actually uh, doing what greatness requires. So when you're working with people and you're asking those questions around what it is that success looks like for them. What are the what are some things that you could could share with people and our listeners, especially around the principle behind this? Meaning it's everybody says, yes, I want to be really good at this or yes, I want to achieve whatever that is that they say success is. But how many times are then they in the next breath maybe talking about the things that they can't control and and that's why they can't. Uh, actually dig in uh, and and be successful. Yeah, I, I mean, I've had, I don't know how many people in the last 13 years, you know, email me or send me a direct message or tweet at me, hey, I want to, you know, when I was at UCLA, hey, I want to, I want to be a director of mental training like you are, you know, what should I do? And I'm like, well, the Dream Center is still taking applications. Nobody volunteered and lived at the Dream Center, not one. Um, you know, I put together a, a reading challenge. It used to be 50 books. Now it's, I think, 74 books in order that I believe are the most powerful books that I have read that encompass the curriculum, if you will, that I teach from. And um, I've had that out there for 
probably eight or nine years and less than 10 people have completed it. Lots of people have started it. Very few people have completed it. And then the, the challenge is just you read a, you read the book, uh, whatever book is next in two weeks. And then you, you have two different options of how you want to go through the challenge. You can write, you know, a five page paper about it, or you can just transcribe your highlights in it. And it's not for me. I, I don't, carrots for them but then if they do that then i let them you know ask me i'll answer two questions um, based off of what they read and i'll go through the entire thing with them and it's so funny because in the beginning you know you'll you'll get people that you know for a month or two the questions will come in and then they just disappear and <laughs> so you know it's it, but it's it's just this it's the same thing over and over again no matter what industry you know that you that you look at the people that you look at and go oh my god i can't believe you know how they're able to do a b or c it's like well somewhere along the line they were most likely willing to do stuff that other people weren't willing to do and they did it for long enough you know i i get people all the time that are like oh my god you're such a gifted speaker and I'm like, no, I have a communications degree from Vanderbilt. I was winning preaching competitions when I was seven years old. My mom had me preaching probably when I was five. I, you know, was doing Bible quiz in Awanas. And, you know, I was on stage playing the violin and the piano. And, you know, and then the first time I ever spoke, like, semi-professionally was at Biola University. My mom happened to be there. And afterwards I was like, mom, how'd I do? And she was like, your content was really, really good. <laughs> but you were a little boring. I think you kind of put us to sleep a little bit. And you know, it's a, it's a, it's just like anything else. It's a skill. It's something. And I don't, I don't do it as much anymore. But I have this depth of work that I've put in for decades and decades that makes something, you know, look a lot easier than it is. And I've read, I don't know how many books. And, you know, now I get people that are like, how do you write like that? And I'm like, well, I, I don't, I don't know. I didn't pay attention in English. I can tell you that I, I you know, and something I just wrote that I'm about to release publicly. One of my friends, you know, was saying it's T O O. And I was like, yeah, I honestly have no clue when to use T O or when to use T O O and the big knock, the one and two star reviews on my books is that there's grammar and typer typo errors everywhere. And I'm like, ah, you know, I, that's, that's not my specialty, it's not my skill set. Um, and so, but yeah, it just, it almost always comes down to when, when you get behind the scenes, it's, they're willing to do stuff over and over and over again. And usually it's basic stuff. It's like the nine Michigan hospitals, you know, that I write about in Chop Wood, Carry Water that, you know, back in, I think it was 2003 or four, they, you know, did this experiment and, you know, after uh, nine months, they had saved $15 million, they had uh, reduced the infection rate by 66% and they'd saved over 1,500 lives. And it wasn't any cool new technology. It wasn't anything fancy or sexy. It was a simple checklist. And the number one thing on the checklist was wash your hands every time before going into the operating room. And 
Well, we knew about that back in 1897 or so when we figured out that the washing of hands helped eliminate the spread of germs. But that doesn't mean that we do it. And it definitely doesn't mean that we do it every single time. So it's like, it's, it's, but it's mundane, you know, I can't remember the guy's name, but who wrote the article, the mundanity of excellence, you know, it's Anson Dorrance, who I had the pleasure of working with at UNC women's soccer. He wrote Mia Hamm a letter, you know, that said that the true vision of a champion is someone bent over, drenched in sweat at the point of exhaustion when no one is watching. And so that's why I say, you know, everyone thinks that you shine under the bright lights, but the bright lights only reveal your work in the dark. And that's what you're seeing. And the easier somebody makes something look under the bright lights, that means in 99.9% of cases, they've done so much work in the dark that they've made something look natural and easy because of all the work that they've put in. And it's oftentimes it's not like complicated stuff. It's just drilling down the basics and the fundamentals so well that then you can experiment and do stuff that looks unnatural, but really it's you have this incredible breadth of skill in doing the basic things really, really well and consistently. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit fcpservices.com. Until next time, remember, people drive growth.